He was an associate pastor uh, for a bit, and now he is in the position of executive pastor at Two Rivers, where he's been for the last six years. Um, but one of the things I really like about Nick, because all those things are great, um, including the part about his family, because I, I know them and they're awesome people. Uh, but the thing I really like about Nick is that um, he is very genuine and very real. And if you just talk to him for just like a couple minutes, um, you, you can really sense that. And he always has like a real smile on his face. And so whenever I see Nick, I like talking to Nick because I know I'm going to get genuineness and realness and that he's going to take an interest in what's going on in my life. I think as a pastor, that's a, those are great characteristics to have. So help me welcome Pastor Nick Tallow. Thank you, Mike. Appreciate it, man. Yeah. Let me get this adjusted. Mike, thank you for that welcome. Um, our... I thought I almost knocked it off there. That'll work. Well, 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 I did. I thought so. Look at that. We'll leave it right there. That works, man. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> thank you, Dr. Bond. And... Uh, I want to thank him for, I mean, I know as a pastor, we, we protect our pulpits, right? We don't just let anybody come up and speak. So the fact that I told him he asked me to speak, and then he asked me to kick this whole thing off, um, shows a lot of trust for one reason or the other, but I'm extremely humbled and honored to be with you all. And I just thank you for welcoming me into your place of worship. And I've been given the task to talk to you about preparing yourselves for corporate worship. And there's really three sections. If you look at your notes, there's three sections we're going to maneuver through here. And before we actually get to the how do we do that, the practical application side of waking up on Sunday mornings or preparing for a conference like that, I want to to kind of talk from the 50,000-foot level and just assume that not everybody in this room is familiar with this idea of worship. And there may be many of you that are. Uh, But I want to start with the basic level, right? Because sometimes it is better to be reminded than it is instructed. So let me just speak from the 50,000-foot level real quick and answer the question, what is this whole worship thing when it comes to the Bible? And why is it so important? I mean, we just sang about it. But let me start with the definition of worship from the Greek, right? The Greek word is proskuneo. Look at your neighbor and say proskuneo. Now look at your other neighbor you neglected and apologize to them and say... Proskuneo. You feel smarter, don't you? Take that with you. That word in the New Testament, uh, dependent upon the translation, is used around 60 times. And here is the uh, higher up intellectual definition. Stick with me because I'll give you the Nick Tallow definition, which is if you're anything like me, I like the cookies on the bottom shelf, right? Just make it simple. This is not simple to me. I'll give you the simple one, but for you intellects in the room, here's what the actual definition is of worship kneeling or prostration to do homage or show loyalty, whether in order to express respect or to make supplication. Should be behind me. Kneeling or prostration to do homage or show loyalty, whether in order to express respect or to make supplication. Now let me give you the dumbed-down, simpler version of worship. Here it is. It's the act of expressing Reverence. I love that word, right? It's like a whole nother level of respect. It's like the fear of God, the awe of God, reverence, honor, and admiration to God. Reverence, honor, and admiration to God. And as we just sang about, we were created, the Bible says, to what? To worship and glorify our God, not just for an hour or two on Sundays, and I know that's what a lot of the, the, the conference is about, 
But from, a, again, a 50,000-foot level, all of our life should scream of the glory of God through the magnification of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 10, 31. It's what the first commandment was, again. And I know we're not bound to the law, but God gives us commandments for what? For, for our good. He says, man, this is the way you are to live, and I know the way you are to live because I created you. So he says, have no other gods before me. And man, did they struggle with that in the Old Testament. And man, do we struggle with that in the New Testament, right? We find idols, we find things to worship, and God is constantly, through his spirit, wanting to draw us back to the foundation and the basics of worship no other God but me. John, in John 4, Jesus, he goes to the Samaritan woman at the well. He tells her all about her life. She tries to divert the conversation to a religious conversation. Hey, we, we worship here, Jesus, on this mountain. The Jews say you have to worship over in Jerusalem. What do you say? He's like, man, you're, you're all about a location. It's all about a location. And this is a location. This is a beautiful location. And there's importance to these four walls. But man, if we pigeonhole this definition of worship simply to these four walls, we're going to miss the blessing of reaching a lost, lost world. So he says, yet a time is coming, John 4, 23. And has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father, he says, in spirit and in truth. I'll talk more about the spirit and truth a little bit because that's what God is seeking, right? Worshipers that are worshiping in spirit and truth. But essentially what he's saying is, hey, you've got the spirit of God. You are the church of God. And wherever you go is where the church goes. Therefore, man, we got to learn in all areas of our life to make sure that God is glorified first and foremost. Pastor John Piper essentially said it's a way of life. Here's what he says. The inner essence of worship is to know God truly and then respond from the heart to that knowledge by valuing God, treasuring God, prizing God, enjoying God, being satisfied with God above all earthly things. And then that deep, restful, joyful satisfaction in God overflows in demonstrable acts of praise from the lips and demonstrable acts of love in serving others for the sake of Christ. So, man, we worship God, and when we do that, when we understand and we keep the gospel in the forefront, right? I always tell my church, man, if the gospel gets old to you, you need to get back to your knees. The gospel should never get old for the simple fact that, man, we were lost, dead, spiritually. Like many people want to paint this picture that it was like, man, we're floating down the river and we're flailing because we're, we're sinking and somehow God jumps in and he pulls us to the shore. That's not the accurate picture. Here's the accurate picture. You and I were dead floating down the river. And God jumped in and brought us to the shore and breathed his life back into us through the death, burial, and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. Worship. It's not reserved for an hour or two, one day a week, but 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And that's hard because as we're getting ready to talk about, we have a very real enemy that constantly wants us to distract us from our real purpose of glorifying. So how does that transfer to corporate worship? Like what major part does corporate worship play in that? I'll read right here from the introduction, and I can't even pronounce his name, so I'm just going to say the guy that wrote the introduction. Here's what he says. The very purpose of assembling together as the people of God in congressional worship is to give the Lord 
the glory due his name. It's what we just talked about. It's what we just sang about. And watch this. And to enjoy the blessing of his promised special presence with his own people in obedience to his instructions set forth in Scripture. Now, let me again give you the dumbed-down version. Matt Merker actually gives it to you later on. He says, God gathers us unto his glory. That's the number one primary reason we do all that we do for our mutual good. Let's not miss this. Much of the outside world, the unbelieving world, looks at Christians and they say, man, I could never love and serve your God because he's just a narcissistic God. I mean, why would, why would God create us and then command us to worship him? That's a pretty narcissistic approach to life, don't you think? As if they're saying God has this hole, and the only reason it's filled, the only way it's filled is by human beings worshiping and glorifying him. Man, they have an inaccurate view of God. God has no such hole. God is fully God with or without man. He did not create us because he needs us. Matter of fact, Acts says he needs nothing. So if God doesn't need you to worship him, he doesn't need me to worship him, why, do he, or excuse me, why does he command us to worship him? For Not for his good, for what? Amen. That's it. It's the whole reason. I always tell our church, man, you want to live in the middle of purpose, which is where you find all the things human beings search their entire lives for. Fulfillment, peace, joy. It's living right in the middle of that fulfilled purpose. And what that does is rearranging our lives to where in every area, not keeping any of it hidden from the glorification and the glorification of God, excuse me, and the magnification of Jesus Christ. So here we go. Before I talk about the practical side, the biggest chunk of this, kind of taking a little bit of a different approach tonight, is about three of the things, three of the obstacles that we will naturally because of our sinfulness, we will naturally gravitate to if we're not intentional in the pursuit of glorifying and worshiping God, especially in corporate worship. There's three areas, and I've called them norms, right? Religious norms, human norms, and cultural norms. Let me start by defining a norm. It's a standard or pattern, especially of social behavior that is typical or expected of a group. Norms in and of themselves are not bad, but when the norm becomes what we're getting ready to talk about, it absolutely is a deterrent from our minds and our hearts being fully focused on God, which is where God wants us to be when we enter into his presence, right? And corporately, he wants us unified in mind and heart and really soul so we can again Get the most from this experience of spending time with him. Let's start with religious norms. People that fall into this, what they do is they reduce the worship experience down to just another checkbox on a long list of to-dos. Religious norm, corporate worship has just become for them a sentimental tradition. They've been doing it for so long. Man, this is so easy to get into, is it not? We're creatures of habits. We do something for so long, something even uh, as important as glorifying God and corporate worship. If we're not careful, we'll reduce it down to just a sentimental tradition. It reminds me of a story, you may have heard this before, of a young girl that goes to her mom in the kitchen, and this mom is baking a ham for the Christmas dinner. And before she puts the ham in the pot, she cuts the ends off the end 
of the ham. She puts it in the pot and she puts it in the oven. The little girl walks over and says, Mom, why did you cut the ends off the ham before you put it in the oven? She says, honestly, I don't really know. I do it because your grandmother did it, my mother. Why don't you go ask her? So she goes to the other side of the kitchen. She asks her grandmother, grandmother, my mom says that you cut the ends off your ham before you put it in the pot and put it in the oven. Why do you do that? She goes, honestly, I have no idea. I do it because my mom did it, your great-grandmother. She's in the other room. Why don't you ask her? Goes to the other room, asks the great-grandma. The great-grandma says, honey, back in my day, we didn't have pots big enough to fit the ham. That's why we did it. I have no idea why your grandmother and your mama still do it. I'll tell you why. Tradition, right? Many of you, we're all going to be celebrating Easter. How many of you guys are going to have some family traditions, nostalgia? It's okay, right? Traditions in and of themselves are not bad. However, when tradition gets brought into the church and trumps truth, right? This is what the Pharisees were all about. We're not in a good place. We've slipped into this religious norm. Mark 7 Five through eight, here's what Jesus said. By the way, I'm preaching out of the NIV. I got permission from Dr. Bond. He called me less of a Christian, but I got permission from him since it's not the ESV. So here we go. Uh, Matthew 7, starting in verse 5. The Pharisees and teachers of the law asked Jesus, Why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food and defile their hands? Right? The Pharisees, these religious, pompous leaders, all they cared about was the external. Jesus replies, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it is written, those people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. As if to say, it is totally possible 2,000 plus years later for us to enter into corporate worship and our lips be saying one thing and our hearts be saying a completely different thing. Normally that's because we've just got into this routine, we've got into this habit, and it's just become another to-do list checkbox. Let's get it done and then let's go back out the doors, back to our life, our plans, our dreams, our will. One commentary said it this way, sentimental Christian faith is one that appears on one level uh, to be fully devoted to Christ. A sentimental Christian delights in the Christian faith because of the comfort it brings them. They love to carry forth the Christian faith in which they were raised, and they are therefore involved at their church. By all accounts, they would seem to be a committed Christian. But if you dig just a little bit below the surface, it becomes clear that their faith is all about comfort. And we're not talking about the comfort where 1 Corinthians says God is the God of all comfort. And he brings us supernatural comfort when we desperately need it. This is more of the comfort is I'm settled in. I've got my church home. And really beyond the hour worship experience, it doesn't go beyond that. Because I've become such comfortable. And in America... This is something I'm very honest with our church about because it's a struggle of mine. Man, how easy is it for all of us to just settle into comfortable Christianity? He goes on to say, Christianity is familiar to them and makes them feel secure because it is how they were raised. Yet when the gospel requires the slightest bit of sacrifice, the sentimental Christian shows resistance. What happens for people that slip into this religious norm is that corporate worship experience gets reduced down to somewhat of just a mindless 
tradition, just going through the motions. And what ends up happening is that these people end up following a tradition instead of following Jesus Christ. The first trap, the first obstacle that Satan, the enemy, wants to put in our way is that we create and treat church. Corporate worship, again, is just another box to check on our long list of to-dos. Number two is human norms. This is actually twofold. Number one, it says corporate worship is just become either a superficial emotional experience or a way to gain more knowledge. A superficial emotional experience, it's just become that, or a way to gain more knowledge. Let me first talk about the emotional side, and this is hard. Because God has given us emotions. They're God-given, and they're usually indicators, right? They're the light on the dashboard that says, hey, something's going on. Check it. We often say emotions make great cabooses, but horrible engines. So emotions are not bad. At times, man, emotions should be evolved in worship. I find myself at times at our church literally on my chair weeping and can't really figure out why other than, man, I just overtaken by the Spirit of God because of what Jesus Christ has done for me. There's nothing wrong with emotions unless that's the only thing that we're seeking. And when that happens, we end up just swimming in the shallow end of the pool, never making it to the deep end. These type of people have no depth to their Christian life, and there is no desire to go deeper. Man, that's dangerous. It's dangerous because people end up making spiritual decisions then based on how they feel rather than what they know to be true. Again, we're emotional creatures, some more than others. You can tell I'm pretty animated. I got some Italian in me, 50%. I've got some emotion in me. I've got to keep that in check at times. Not in the sense that I'm afraid to cry in front of an individual. I'm not talking about that. But in the sense that I, I forsake truth for emotion. And man, that can happen in a worship experience. And on some level, it should. Not the emotion over truth, right? But the emotional side of it. Going back to John 4 when Jesus said, man, we are to worship God in spirit and in truth. The spirit side is often equated to that emotional. It's not only emotional, but there is a spiritual component to that. We always say in our green room where we gather before our services with our worship team, our pastors, our tech team, and we do our prayer and we're talking about the day and we always say, man, spirit of God fall in this place. That's important. Why? If he doesn't, we're just wasting our time and everybody else's time. Because there's never been a sermon, there's never been a song that's changed the heart of a human being. It's only the Spirit of God, right, moving in that place. So that is an important element of this. But man, what he says is spirit and what? Truth. You can go down a similar path when it talks about in John where Jesus was all grace and all truth, right? You got the grace camp and you got the truth camp. We need to learn that beautiful blend of grace and truth, spirit and Truth, the people that fall into this norm often only go to church or follow Jesus because they are seeking an emotional experience. They seek an emotional high or they seek to be entertained. They judge their spiritual condition by their emotional feelings. Some people believe that if they have an emotional experience, excuse me, at church, then it means that God has visited them or that they are growing spiritually. And can it mean that? Absolutely. But that is not the only uh, element or foundation when it comes to that, Ephesians 2.8, very well-known verse, reminds us that salvation comes through faith. 
not feelings. Faith, not feelings. On the other hand, then you've got the intellectuals, the really smart people. And maybe that's some of you in this room. I don't consider myself this, but I can float that direction out of pride, this direction I'm getting ready to talk about. Corporate worship just becomes another avenue to gain more knowledge. James 3.13 says, he, or excuse me, who is wise in understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. What are you saying here, Nick? There's a difference, right, between knowledge and wisdom. And what much of the world is seeking is to puff themselves up through more knowledge and more knowledge and more knowledge. And if that's all we're seeking and we don't truly have an encounter with Jesus Christ or with God or with the Holy Spirit of God, that knowledge just gets to our head, right, and just gives us more information to go out in the world and combat people that don't believe what we believe in typically an arrogant and prideful manner. The world doesn't need any more of that, y'all. They really don't. They've seen enough of that. And it's the reason so many hold a hand out to Christians is because so many have come at it from an arrogant approach instead of a graceful approach approach, right? Grace and truth. Grace is the key that unlocks the door for truth to enter in. Do I need to say that again? Grace is the key that opens the door for truth to enter in. And if we're not careful, these are the people that typically fall in the truth camp. Truth is important. It's the foundation. It's the authority of everything that we should do and base our life off of. But man, when we're in the truth camp only, which is again, just the puff up of knowledge really don't get anywhere with the unbelieving world. So when we come in here, if all we're based on is, man, I'm just here to get fed, just here to get fed, just here to get fed. And sometimes people leave churches and I hear it say, oh, I just wasn't getting fed. And I'll say, how long have you been a believer? Oh, most of my life. Here's the spoon. You know how to feed yourself. And I'm not taking responsibility off the Dr. Bond, right? Or myself as a pastor, right? I want to I bring something to the table for that. But man, I always say, when I'm de- developing my sermons, and right, we're a very evangelistic church, I meaning we have a lot of people come in week in and week out that, that are unbelievers and, are, and are, are new believers, which is great. So when I'm developing my sermons, at least at our church, I always tell them, man, I'm wavering to the side of making it as simplistic as possible for the people that don't know Jesus Christ or maybe just got to know him. For the rest of you, I hope you get something out of it. We have small groups. We have Bible studies. Again, you should know how to feed yourself at that point. Doesn't mean we can't come in here. Wanting to gain knowledge, wanting to listen to the sermon and to gain something. But here's what one author puts it. Watch this. We have so much information, we often feel overwhelmed as vast terabytes of news constantly assail us via our phones and devices. This creates a paralysis, right? The inability to move some or all of your body. When we grow accustomed to this paralysis and live with it as a default, or excuse me, then we grow accustomed to paralysis and live with it as a default. We're, we're used to hearing new information, even being moved by such information, and then doing absolutely nothing about it. See, what most of us need is not more information, but more revelation. And oftentimes, again, the intellect struggles with this because they just want more and want more. And man, there is enough information out there, podcasts, sermons, 24 hours, seven days a week, radio stations, bot radio, all of that. All of that in and of itself is good. Corporate worship, again, I keep having to express this so you know, bring it back to what we're talking about here. 
listening to the sermon, taking notes, internalizing that is good. But again, the only reason we're doing that is so we can puff ourselves up with knowledge. We're missing the point of corporate worship. We must not reduce corporate worship down to an intellectual experience only, but also spirit-filled, one that activates the whole body and the entire soul. So you've got religious norms, you've got human norms, and honestly, um, based on the interview that I heard Dr. Bond do on Bot Radio, this is the one of the reasons this entire uh, um, uh, topic was chosen is this third one, the cultural norms. So easy to drift in this direction. The corporate worship for people that drift in the cultural norms has just become another consumer experience. Another means by which we go to get what we want. We have eight value statements that uphold our mission statement. Our mission statement is is we exist to help people become passionate followers of Jesus Christ. We have eight value statements, again, uh, that kind of all of our decision processes move through. One of those value statements is we are not, we are spiritual contributors, not just spiritual consumers. There must be some consumption, right? Consumption is not bad, on a moderated level, right? But if it's just spiritual consumption, we're leaving out a huge component, which is the contribution component. Consumer, here's what it is. A person who purchases goods and services for personal use. On a broader scale, something you eat, drink, ingest, buy, purchase, or simply use up for the benefit of the person consuming. Church, we're really, really good at consuming in America, aren't we? If you don't believe that, let me give you some statistics of the culture that we are emerged in. There are 300,000 items in the average American home. The average size of the American home has nearly tripled in size over the past 50 years. And still, one out of every 10 Americans rent offside storage, the fastest growing segment of the commercial real estate industry over the past four decades. of people with two-car garages don't have room to park cars inside them. Dang it, I'm part of this statistic. And 32% of them have room for only one vehicle. 3.1% of the world's children live in America, but they own 40% of the toys consumed globally. Matter of fact, the average 10-year-old owns 238 toys. I don't even get that. Are they counting each piece of a Lego set? Because if that's the case, we're in. The average American family spends $1,700 annually on clothes. Our homes have more television sets than they do people. Americans spend $100 billion, that's with a B, per year on shoes, jewelry, and watches. And Americans spend $1.2 trillion, that's with a T, annually on non-essential goods. In other words, items they don't need. That's $9,500 per household. Why do I bring that up? Just to express, man, we're really really good as a nation at consuming. And not only are we good at consuming, we're good at being served well while we consume. Let me give you some examples of the progression here in America over the years, right? There was a day where you had to, this was actually in my childhood, the next one is before my childhood, but there was a day for you youngins in the room, right? Younger than me, That literally, if you wanted to go out on a Saturday morning and get your groceries, you couldn't just go to one store. 
You had to go to one store, and you could only buy the items that they allowed you to buy in that store. You'd pack all those up, you'd get back in your car, you'd drive to the other side of the town. You'd then go to that grocery store, and you'd get the rest of your items. And if they didn't have it, you may have had to go to a third store. Then they invented supermarkets, where now you, it's a one-stop shop, right? You get out of your car, you find everything, for the most part, in one store. If that wasn't comfortable enough for us Americans, they then introduced pickup, where you order everything online, you pull up your car. For those of you that have automatic trunk, right, you don't even have to get out of your car. They bring it to your car, they load it into your car. And if that wasn't good enough for us Americans... They now have Instacart, where you don't even have to get out of your house. They bring it to your front door. And if we didn't think that was good enough, Walmart right now is working on something where they don't only bring it to your front door. They'll bring it in your house and unpack it. You don't even have to get up from your couch. Let me give you another example, another industry. How about the, the food industry? There was a day, this was before my time, well, there's no such thing as fast food. If you wanted to go dine at a restaurant, you had to dine in at a restaurant. You had to get out of your car and go in to that restaurant. Some of you are dating yourselves right now. You're doing this, yeah? Yeah, I hear you, brother. Then they invented fast foods. Again, you didn't have to get out of your car. You just pull up to a window. We're all familiar with this. And again, that wasn't convenient enough. We now have DoorDash, where, again, we don't have to, to uh, leave our house. By the way, I take advantage of all of those things. There's nothing wrong with those things in and of themselves. Here's my point. Not only are we used to consuming and being served, but being served in the most convenient way possible, which means no wonder when people go looking for a church, their mindset often is, which one will serve me the best? It's a cultural mindset that if we're not careful, we will drag right into the corporate worship experience. And we make it all about us instead of what we talked about on the front end. Man, this is not a single bit about us. It is about the glorification of God. Pastor Craig Rochelle says there's never been a day that's more about promoting self than the world we live in right now. Social media basically normalizes and applauds pride. We have to recognize the church doesn't exist for us, but we're the church and we exist for the world. Serving isn't something we do. A servant is who we are called to be. Now, don't get me wrong. The church is still very much a place for the sick and the hurting. And I understand they go through seasons of life where, man, you are going through something extremely difficult, and the only thing you can do is drag yourself into this room, sit in your chair, and just soak up the love of God. That's okay. I just don't believe God wants to leave us there for very long, right? He wants to remind us of all of his promises, of his goodness, of his faithfulness, of his love. He wants to pick us up, dust us off, and put us back on the front lines, starting with being filled up from corporate worship, being unified with your brothers and sisters and edified and encouraged through worship, the singing of God's word, the preaching of God's word, prayer, and all the things that are going to be sus this weekend. It is not about us. And everywhere we go outside the church, and even sometimes in some churches, we got to be careful, right? The message is, make it about you. Make it about you. And the more you make it about you, the more I make it about me, the more happy and fulfilled I will be. And man, that's one of the biggest lies by Satan ever perpetuated by humankind, on humankind. And most of us, including myself, have to learn the hard way. Colossians 1, 15 through 17 says the Son, that's Jesus Christ, is the image 
of the invisible God. The firstborn over all creation, for in him all things were created. Things on heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authority, all things have been created through him and what? For him. That includes the corporate worship experience. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.15 says it this way, And he, that's Jesus, died for all. We bring nothing to the dance. Right? That's something we got to remind ourselves. One of our phrases at Two Rivers Church is preach the gospel to yourself every day. And if you do it in a way that takes us out of the picture and puts Jesus right in the center, it should on some level, whether symbolically or really physically, drop us to our knees. To be reminded of what Jesus went to to bring us back in redeemed relationship eternally with God. He says, and he died for all, that those who live shall no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. The sad thing is, is that many don't follow Jesus so they become more like him, but so they get more from him. And man, we've got to check our hearts regularly in this, not just on Sunday mornings when we're entering corporate worship, but that's a huge element man we've got to come in here fully engaged mind and heart ready to worship with one sole purpose the glorification of god and man we do that we reap the benefits still we reap the blessing as matt Merker said in his definition of corporate worship those are the pitfalls there's probably more those are three primary ones that if we don't check our hearts regularly as king david said right know my heart lord search me And it's not because God doesn't know it. What he's saying there is, help me know myself. Help me know my tendencies and my pitfalls and my habits that have become contrary to where you want me to be. So when I come together with my church family and then move out from my church family, it truly is, truly is grace and truth filled, focused on glorifying you and magnifying your son Jesus. So five quick things. How do we do that well? How do we prepare ourselves well Practically and application-wise. Number one, remember you have an enemy. See the whole middle section. Remember you have an enemy. Some churches are afraid to talk about the enemy as if if you don't talk about him, then maybe you know, we, we, he doesn't exist. No, he exists. And he's very real. And he's all around us. And I'm not in the camp that makes it about everything, right? Gives him more credit than we give Jesus Christ who destroyed the enemy and had victory over the enemy. But... We have to acknowledge regularly that he exists and he wants nothing more than the worship that is due to God to be over to him. Isn't it what he tried to tempt Jesus with in the, garden, or in the desert? The whole premise there was to get Jesus to worship Satan. And Satan's so clever, he does it in so many different ways. He masks us in certain ways. And again, if we're not careful, we're not having regular heart checks. And corporate worship can do that for us. We will slip into the worship of everything but God. Remember, you have an enemy. Number two, acknowledge that corporate worship is of essential importance. Some of you have either done that and forgotten about that. Some of you are right in the middle of that. Praise God. Some of you have never made that declaration. Gosh, I guess I haven't realized. And maybe that's what this weekend, actually, I know what this weekend's about, is to bring some of us back to that foundational belief Some of us to that belief to begin with. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, well-known verse. 
Right? God's people have been gathering together for centuries, from the beginning. And the writer of Hebrews says, Let us consider how we may spur one another along towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. Man, it's easy to not gather together these days, isn't it? It's easy to make an excuse. It was easy for a couple years now, right? It's easy to watch it online, which again, I think there's a place for that. We have online church. I always said if I wasn't the pastor, I'd probably find myself in the living room more than I do now, right? I don't have that option. I'm just being real. Like I would probably settle into that at times and then have to check that at times and realize, man, God didn't create me to sit on my couch on Sunday mornings. He created me to be around other believers on a regular basis. And by the way, if you tune in online from time to time, again, there's no, there's no judgment there. It's when we make a habit out of that that I think we've gone wrong. We've gone away from the central importance of corporate worship. Acknowledge Settle in on the fact in your heart and your mind that, man, corporate worship is of central importance. Number three, worship all week long. This kind of ties back in what we talked about on the first part. Making sure that worship is not just an hour or two, one day a week. Mark Ashton, in his book, Worship by the Book, says, The notion that you can come to church on Sunday and bend your knee in worship when, in fact, you have not done so during the week is delusional. Paul says in Romans 12, 1, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Watch this. Holy and pleasing to God, this is your true and proper worship. He says it's a living sacrifice. It's all week long. It's in everything that we do. Interesting enough, right after that is one of my favorite verses in all of scripture, Romans 12, 2, do not conform to the patterns of the world. Where we just slip into all of the norms that we just talked about. Man, we must build a lifestyle where we're in God's word on a regular basis. We're praying on a regular basis. We're engaging with God's church outside of just Sunday morning. So when we come here on Sunday mornings, it's just the overflow of what God has been doing all week long. Number four, settle yourself. Settle yourself. This is a hard one for me. It makes me think of the story of Mary and Martha. Jesus walks into the home. He's got disciples with him. Mary sits over and joins him. Behind there, they hear clanging and pots and cooking. And here's the, here's the reality about that story. What Martha was doing in the background, nothing wrong with that. Wanting to prepare a beautiful meal for a guest, Jesus, nonetheless. Nothing wrong with that, except it distorted her view of who God was because she was so distracted, the text says. And how do we know her view was distorted? Because she says, Lord, don't you care? So what you acknowledge him as Lord, he's Lord, of course he cares. He created you. He loves you. You know this from the Hebrew text, the Hebrew Bible, Martha. But you're so distracted by all of these things that aren't important in the moment that when Jesus enters your home, you're in his presence, you can't even stop long enough to sit at his feet and worship him. How many of y'all step into worship? Let's just be honest. And man, your mind just can't stop going about all the to-do lists and all of the things. This may be the hardest one because it requires us to take an honest look at our calendars and our schedules and our life to say, man, if we just slipped, like this could be another norm. 
I didn't know what to call it, so I didn't make it one, but it's another norm in some sense where we've just slipped into this mindset of I've got to keep up with the Joneses. I'm falling behind. If I don't do what all the other parents are doing, if I don't do what all the other people are doing, I'm going to be left behind and forgotten about as if, again, it's about us. So when we get to this beautiful, unified, corporate worship, we can't even settle our hearts' minds long enough to even hear from the Holy Spirit. This is a hard one, again, because it's not something we can just wake up tomorrow, snap our fingers, and be like, all right, I'm ready now to settle myself. Man, we've really got to take a look at our lives and say, man, have I slipped into a Martha-type lifestyle? To where going back to point number three, it's hard for me to even worship all week long. (coughs) To settle long enough to do my quiet time, devotional, to be present in the moment with people, ministering to people, encouraging people, being encouraged ourselves. Number four, settle yourself. And number five, (coughs) maybe the obvious of all, but may not be something you all are doing, pray. Now all of you young, like myself, People in the room that have young kids, I shouldn't say young people, just people that have young kids in the room, you're like, yeah, I, I pray from the time I wake up on Sunday morning to the time I leave this church. My wife has four of them. I get there really early. She has to do all four of them by herself. I pray for my wife every Sunday, let alone her praying for herself. But honestly, like at the beginning of the year, I kicked off the entire year at our church on Sunday about the importance of getting in God's word. I did a similar format where at the end I just gave 10 practical tips of the importance of getting in God's word, but how to do it and how to get the most out of it. And one of them, and you'd be surprised, so many people came up to me afterwards and were like, man, I've never thought about praying before I actually opened my Bible because it's just become a checklist. But man, it's for us to stop settle our minds, settle our hearts, and to think about what we're getting ready to do. The fact that we have the confidence to boldly enter the throne room of God because of Jesus Christ. The fact that at any point, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, we can enter into God's presence. The fact that here in America, we have the freedom to come together really whenever we want, right? And worship God is something that we should not take for granted, but something that we need to get in the regular habit in a good way to stop before we enter those doors, or maybe when you come in here to just settle your heart, settle your mind, and pray so we can worship God in spirit and in truth, letting the spirit lead the way. Church, corporate worship is so important, and it has been from the very beginning. It looks different throughout the history of God's people, but God has created us as communal beings because he is a communal God. He's created us to come in here and be unified, to worship together, and Satan knows this importance, and he will do anything and everything he can to divide churches, to divide households, to divide people, to divide Christians to get us all distracted on all the things that really don't matter, second and third issues, so we're not focusing on the utmost importance of coming in and spirit and truth fully focused on God. And man, when you do that, you continue to do that. Watch out, O'Fallon, Missouri, right? And we're not your competition. We're on the south side of O'Fallon. We're not your competition, y'all. We're your family. We're doing this together. We're unified together on Sunday mornings, worshiping the same God. And Satan does not like that. 
But when we do that, the gates of hell do not prevail. So I cannot urge you enough as a church, as you listen to the rest of these speakers, really, to just search your heart. Ask God to search and say, man, where really am I with this whole corporate worship thing? Have I slipped into the religious norm? Have I made it just about an emotion or about the intellect? Have I made it really about me? Lay that all at the foot of the cross where the playing field is level and let Jesus free you from that, shower you with his grace, his forgiveness, and his love so you can get back up and be the Christian and the church God has called all of us unified to be. Amen? Let me pray. God, thank you so much. Thank you, Lord, for the freedom, first off, that we have in Jesus Christ. Thank you for the freedom that we have here in America to do what we're doing tonight, what we get to do on Saturday nights sometimes, what we get to do on Sunday mornings, and really all throughout the week, anytime we want to. But, Father, with that freedom comes responsibility. So I pray and I ask that you help us mightily through your spirit to not take the assembly of your people for granted, but that we see this as utmost importance to the calling, the purpose that you've given every single one of us, which is as we exit these doors, these four walls, that the church doesn't stay just in here, but it goes with us wherever we go. And the people that you've allowed us to be around in our places of employment, in our kids' activities, in our kids' schools, in our neighborhoods, literally, our eyes and our hearts and our minds are wide open to the mission field because we came in this place fully ready to worship and glorify you. You filled us up, and now we're overflowing onto a lost, dark, and broken world. Keep that in the forefront, Father. Thank you so much for this opportunity. Thank you for this church and the pastors at this church that are pe- preaching biblical truths, Lord. And I pray it penetrates not just the mind, but the heart. So we can be all grace and all truth to whoever we encounter. Father, we love you. We praise you. And all God's people said, yeah. amen.